Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, would we, have, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Thank you. you may be seated. We come to the text this morning. We must be mindful of how much we all hate Fake people. None of us like to be lied to by someone who's acting like they are something which they really actually aren't. We all hate to find out later that someone's reputation was a total smokescreen which was hiding their real and true self. The greatest scandals in the church world and the political world are of that very nature. Someone who's played a game with their reputation and the real them has been discovered through some egregious sin, and we all despise that reality. And yet, we all, if we're honest with ourselves and with one another, know the daily struggle of not putting the mask over our own spiritual faces. You know, the one we want everyone else to see and, and to think of us in light of this. So we're a complicated bunch, aren't we? We hate inauthenticity, but we give ourselves a pass and are patient with our own hypocrisy. The text before us is a hand-picked account of the final hours of Jesus' life. John is carefully selecting and putting together the historical record in this way for a reason. Now, we know he can't tell us everything. Why can't he tell us everything? Because the length of the scroll keeps him from being able to put it all down. In fact, he'll tell us in chapter 21 that if everything were to be written about the life of Christ, the whole world could not contain all the books that would be written. So it is impossible for mankind to put on the record everything that Jesus said and did in his earthly ministry. John can't tell us everything. But he handpicks certain things to make a point. And he spends 40% of his scroll space 
to tell us about the final week of Jesus' life. And the other gospel writers do the exact same thing because God's communicating to you through these four combined records that you need to pay a special attention to his final week. We can almost lay out an hour-by-hour order of events from the gospel records of the life of Jesus in his final week. And so we know what happened and we know what Jesus said almost down to the hour. This is the climactic event of of human history, the the peak to which everything ascends and from which everything descends. And so we're given this detailed account of the final events of the life of Jesus, the final hours of his time with his disciples, his arrest, his six trials, three before the religious authorities, three before the judicial Roman authorities, his condemnation, his turning over to be scourged, his being nailed to a cross, lifted up, and gasping his final breath as he cries out, it is finished. All the way through to his being buried in a borrowed tomb, presumed to be a sinner, though innocent, proving his innocence and the fullness of his sacrifice by rising again on the third day, just as he said he would. God wants you to know every part of this that is detailed in the scripture for us. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, each gospel writer is selecting and organizing these facts to tell us about Jesus. John in particular has a a point to his writing, and he tells us what that point is. They all have a point, but John in particular says, I have a theological point. I want you to know that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Son of God. But he doesn't just have a theological point. He doesn't want you to just know the facts theologically so you can make the case that Jesus is from God, from heaven, the Son of God. He has an evangelistic purpose. He wants you to know that so that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so a key part to you believing that Jesus is the Son of God and to having life in his name by believing in him is to understand his sacrifice for you in his final hours. And so John lays down for you with great specificity what happened after his arrest. And in particular before us this morning, his trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. What we see in our text is as John lays these facts before us, one of the points I think he most definitely wants us to see is the hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin in concert with the political gamesmanship and confusion of the Roman governor, Pilate. And these points combine to prove that Jesus is truth incarnate. He is truth in human flesh. So with all this confusion about what's true around him, with all this deception, playing with the facts and using political power to get your way, with all that happening in the trials of Jesus, the one who comes out shining brightly in eternal glory is Jesus, the Son of God, proving that he is true, and is truth. He passes the test. As we open the scene in verse 28, we remember that Peter has just denied his Lord three times. He fades off the scene as John moves to this trial before Pilate. Jesus has been taken from that trial before Annas, the former high priest, the the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the kingmaker of priests, as it were. 
And now he appears before Caiaphas, the son-in-law, and the acting high priest. John doesn't tell us much about that trial before Caiaphas or before the Sanhedrin. In, you, in the other gospel writers, you read, and particularly uh, Matthew and Luke, of, of how Caiaphas is pressing Jesus, are you the son of God? Did you blaspheme? Remember, that's when they're, they're scrounging up, trying to find two to three witnesses to come together and prove that Jesus is a blasphemer and deserves to die, and they can't find any. And so finally, Caiaphas looks at Jesus and says, are you the son of God? And Jesus finally, after long silence, answers, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And you remember Caiaphas', Caiaphas response? He tears his garments out of uh, supposed dread over the blasphemy of Jesus. And he calls on the Sanhedrin, the ruling, governing men entrusted with the power over the Jewish people. And they together say he should be condemned for blasphemy. Having decided that, they rise up for their seats. And they, this is not in John. This is in the other Gospels. You can read it later. They rise up from their seats. As, as dignified uh, political powerhouses, they rise up and they strike Jesus. And they pluck his beard and they spit on him. And they mock him and they say, prophesy for us. Who hit you now? To belittle him and humiliate him because they have condemned him to die. These are all before the sun rises on Friday in the late or early morning hours of Friday. Finally, the sun starts to rise, and they gather as Sanhedrin, and they proclaim publicly and officially that Jesus of Nazareth deserves to die because of his blasphemy. This is where John picks up the account. They transfer him then from their official condemnation to Pilate. John tells us they're taking him to Pilate in the early morning hours, and they're doing this to have him officially condemned by Rome for execution by crucifixion. And by the way, this all had been worked out ahead of time with Pilate. As Dr. Bookman said, likely some drachmas had exchanged hands between the Sanhedrin and Pilate. They had worked out a deal. They had told Pilate ahead of time this was happening. They They certainly had to enlist Pilate to get the Roman band of soldiers together late in the night on Thursday to go arrest Jesus. Pilate knew that was going on very likely. And they had worked out with him, listen, we're going to bring him to you early Friday morning, and here is our plan, and and by the way, here's some gold to make sure you abide by the plan. And so they appear before Pilate expecting a rubber stamp approval of their condemnation to turn him over to scourging and to put him within hours on a Roman cross to suffer and die. The Roman governor, Pilate, has been put in this place for two very specific reasons. As he was hand-selected by the emperor, by Caesar in Rome, and told to go to Judea and rule over these people, He was given two jobs. One was to keep the peace. Make sure there are no uprisings in Judea. And by the way, there's a lot of people there who want to overthrow Rome. So watch your P's and Q's and be on it. Secondly, make sure they pay their tributes to Rome. Make sure you keep them in subjection to us as they continue to pay their taxes to Rome. So he has two Jobs, And here's a situation in which he can easily just go with the flow of the political hierarchy over the Jews and let them have their way, use the money that exchanged hands behind back doors 
Say Jesus is guilty and be done with it. Pilate, having heard of this Jesus, Pilate maybe even having heard reports of the miracles of Jesus, Pilate knowing that Jesus had done good things, now is being told by men he knows are driven along by envy, as Luke tells us and Mark tells us, that he knows they are seeking Jesus' death for wrong reasons. Just six weeks before this moment, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Certainly that did not speak, did not seek, uh, did not sneak, I'll get it out, sneak past Pilate. That's a hard thing to say, apparently. He had heard, I'm sure, of Lazarus being raised from the dead who had been dead four days in the tomb. Pilate normally lived in a, in a palace built by Herod the Great down by the Mediterranean Sea in Caesarea Maritima. But now as the high feast of Passover was happening in Jerusalem, it was a, a powder keg of political excitement waiting to explode. And as the Roman governor who needed to keep the peace, as the chief officer of the Roman army, he needed to have boots on the ground. And so he was in Jerusalem, staying in Herod's palace in the fortress Antonia, named for Mark Antony. And he is here presented with the hottest political potato to ever face a Roman ruler. And it is about to blow up in his face. The Sanhedrin pushing him, telling him, do what we told you to do. Pilate wrestling in his heart, in his soul, with what is true. And now Jesus, before them both, in these early morning hours, proves his glory as he stands in all truth. John doesn't tell us the exact hour of what's happening here. We're told by the historians of the day that the Roman rulers usually woke up and got to work about 4.30 or 5 in the morning. They were done then by noon, and they had the rest of the day and evening to do what they wanted to do. By my study, I think it's likely about 6 a.m. They have quickly met at sunrise to officially condemn him publicly, to put some kind of of official stamp of approval on their kangaroo court the night before. And now they usher him out of the temple compound and to Pilate just a few hundred yards away. Pilate leaves his, uh, his abode. The palace is called out to meet them outside. In their estimation... The Sanhedrin's estimation, things are humming along. This is going as planned. There's one fly in the ointment that might be a problem, and that is that they had connived with Judas to turn over Jesus in private, away from the crowds. But part of the deal also was that Judas would then come with them before the Roman governor and would be the the prosecution's witness to get the trial started. And that's how Rome operated. Every trial in Rome had to be public, and it had to have a prosecution witness to get a trial started. And so they're coming into this Roman trial without their main witness because by this time, Judas has thrown his 30 pieces of silver on the ground, rushed out of the city, and committed suicide. And so now the Sanhedrin have one little fly in the ointment. We don't have an official witness to present before Pilate. They longed for this to go quickly, and now they stand with this accused man without their witness. John's the only one who tells us most or this much detail about the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And as he does this, he makes a few things clear for us. So he makes it clear that 
that this did not go how the Jewish authorities thought it was going to go. That's very clear. Especially as you get into chapter 19, you see they are irate with Pilate. They're so mad at him, they're yelling at him, commanding him to put Jesus to death. It's also clear that Pilate is a a different man after talking with Jesus. We'll get into this more next week, but Pilate had his, his view of things before he went into the conversation, and when he comes out, he is trying everything he knows how to release Jesus. And we know that because Luke tells us that. We also know that because Peter, in Acts 3, verse 13, when he's preaching after he heals the lame man in the temple after the day of Pentecost, so we're moving quite a bit ahead here, he's preaching, and in Acts 3, 13, he says that they were committed to killing Jesus even though Pilate decided to release him. So Pilate is different after talking with Jesus. But the Jewish leaders persist in their demand for the blood of Jesus. I want to focus this morning on the Sanhedrin and their hypocrisy. I want to come back next week and dig deeper into that interaction between Pilate and Jesus. I'm drawn to these two things because I'm asking the question, why does John give us the details he does about this trial? I think one of the main things he intends for us to take note of and to learn from is the spiritual hypocrisy of these Jewish men. And this had been a constant frontal attack by our Lord throughout his ministry, right? From day one, he had entered into Jerusalem and he had cleansed the temple to let everyone know what's going on here is a sham of spiritual hypocrisy. At every turn, he healed people on the Sabbath to let people know that the Pharisees' Sabbath-keeping laws are a sham of spiritual hypocrisy. You remember, as he entered Jerusalem on his final week, on that Sunday, the triumphal entry screams of Hosanna, save us, our king, blessed be the name, the one who comes in the name of, our, of David, our father. As they long for him to be their ruler, and he hears their applause and their cries for salvation, he goes in and he cleanses the temple again, making clear that what's going on here is a sham of spiritual hypocrisy. And then he stands in a position of authority on Monday and Tuesday in the temple courtyards, and he faces one challenge after another as the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes come and bring their minutia-type questions of the law. You know, the question like, there's a woman married to a man. He dies. She marries his brother. He dies. She marries his brother. She dies. And on to seven. And, and in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? trying to trip up Jesus and and make it clear that he can't be the Messiah he's claiming to be. And he withstands one challenge after another, after another, and he finishes his time in the temple courtyard on Tuesday evening. Turn to Matthew 23. I didn't plan this, so you know your lunch might get burnt. It's okay. Matthew 23. Look at this. This is Tuesday evening. After he has stood every test and trial they can throw at him, testing whether or not he's the Messiah, He now stands in a position of authority in the temple and he says to the crowds and his disciples, Matthew 23, 1, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylactery 
phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And he goes on, and as you read later in the chapter, he pronounces woes on them. Jump down to verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven different times as he finishes his earthly ministry and publicly denounces what is the focus of his attack. It is the hypocrisy of men who stand in positions of power over God's people, positions assigned to them by God, and they, using those positions of power to pad their own pockets, to feed their own fleshly lusts, and to not do anything of what they call others to do. And now Jesus, back in John 18, stands before these duplicitous, hypocritical, spiritually disingenuous men as they march him to Pilate and say, crucify this man. This stands as another warning flag in John's gospel for us, doesn't it? He's calling you to believe in Jesus as the Son of God so you may have life in his name. And along the way, he paints for you pictures of people who do not truly believe. These are men who do not truly believe. They have all the accoutrements, all the, all the nice vestments of belief. They look like they believe. They talk like they believe. They go to the places that people go when they believe. But they are hypocrites to their core. Last week we saw the warning from Peter's life about our tendency to deny our Lord by our words and our actions. Now we see this week the negative example of the Sanhedrin that stands as a spiritual check over our own heart and soul. So what is spiritual hypocrisy? And we could spend the next 50 minutes on this question, but what is it? Is it just that Whenever you know you should do something and you fail to do it, is that hypocrisy? Of course not. Of course not. That's all of us. We all struggle to obey that which we know. We all are in process. Now, hypocrisy is much deeper. Hypocrisy is rooted in our inner man, intentionally uh, seeking to deceive others intentionally seeking to pre- present ourselves as something that we in truth are not. These men in John 18 are the highlight reel for the academy of spiritual hypocrisy. You want to know how to be a spiritual hypocrite, then read their biography, and you will know how. Over the next few minutes, I want to give you a a definition or an examination of hypocrisy. It's not exhaustive. It can't be. To do that, we really would need to consider all of Scripture, but especially Matthew 23. But I want to show you what John shows us about the reality of spiritual hypocrisy, the indicators of hypocrisy. So if you're a hypocrite, and I know you're all thinking of someone else in the room. That's not what I said. And say if your friend's a hypocrite, that if you are a hypocrite, then these things will be true of you. We see, first of all, that spiritual hypocrisy is deceptive. It's deceptive. Hypocrisy is a deep fake that begins in our heart and is expressed in the lies we tell others and ourselves. 
To be a hypocrite is to put on a mask of sorts, to be an actor on the stage of life where we look the part and we talk the part and we act the part. We want others to think we really are the part, but really in the depths of who we are, that's not who we are. Hypocrisy is deceptive in that it keeps the real and true us hidden from public exposure and it puts before others what we want them to see us to be. That's what the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests were so good at. We see it right away in our text in verse 28. They bring Jesus to the praetorium, which is a Latin military word, which means wherever the general's headquarters are. It's a battlefield term. Where where the, the general slept his tent, that was the praetorium. In Jerusalem, it's the Antonia Fortress. And so Pilate's the chief commanding officer of the Roman army in Judea, and so wherever he takes up residence is the Praetorium. In Jerusalem, he's living in Herod's palace, part of this fortress connected to the temple complex. And as part of this structure, as Dr. Bookman explained a few years ago, did I tell you I'm going to his conference this weekend and you should come? There's a judgment seat, a bema seat, right outside of, of the city gates, right outside of this complex of the Antonia Fortress. And when they come to him in verse 28 and ask him to come outside, he very likely, very high percentage of possibility, comes out and sits on this bema seat, this this ruling, judging chair from which he would rule as governor of the land. John tells us it was early morning. Remember, they're expecting a rubber stamp of approval from Pilate. They've worked this out with him already. They're supposed to receive uh, Jesus as uh, Pilate's supposed to receive Jesus as delivered to him, condemn him to die, hand him over to the soldiers to be scourged and crucified, and then they're going to get on their merry way and enjoy their Passover feast. And here it is where we see the blatant spiritual hypocrisy of, this, of these men, isn't it? John tells us that they didn't want to enter Pilate's headquarters because they were afraid they would be defiled. They didn't want to be defiled because they still wanted to eat the Passover later in the day. Now let that sink in for a moment. Here they want to remain ceremonially clean so that they can continue on with the Passover feast all while committing the most egregious crime and miscarriage of justice ever known in human history. And you should in your heart say, how is this possible? And then immediately counter with, oh, I know how. Right? You know this same putting on of the mask of hypocrisy that we see in this text. While you chew on that for a moment, I want to deal with that prickly problem of harmonizing, verse 28, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's record. So here's the problem. Maybe you didn't catch it. I'm going to lay it before you because I want you to believe and know that the scriptures are without error. And that though there are difficulties of trying to understand how they all fit together, they are not impossibilities. They have answers. That's the point of this, all right? It's to affirm and confirm to you that your Bible is the Word of God, without error and sufficient for all things in life and godliness. Here's the problem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have told us that Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal on Thursday night. The Last Supper became the, the first Lord's Supper. Which is why they didn't want to, and then the Sanhedrin connected to them haven't yet eaten the Passover meal. 
according to what he says in verse 28. That's why they don't want to be defiled by entering Pilate's headquarters. If they did that, according to rabbinical law, they couldn't eat the Passover. They couldn't be part of the temple proceedings for another seven days. They'd have to go through all these ritual washings, and then they could participate once again after seven days. All right, so how do we work this out? Jesus and his disciples, Passover meal Thursday night. Here we are Friday morning, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, the priests and the Pharisees. You know they care about the law, right? By doing this, they're trying to keep the law. And they say, John tells us, they don't want to enter Pilate's headquarters because they want to be defiled so they can eat the Passover later on Friday. Now listen, the first thing you have to affirm is the inerrancy of Scripture. This is not an error here. The gospel records can and must be harmonized. That doesn't mean that we can just throw up our hands and say, listen, it's inerrant. They're both true. Move on. Don't do that. Do the spade work of deep study to figure this out. Rely on the, the wonderful minds of church history that have wrestled with this reality and see the answers they came up with. I'm going to give you a brief answer. If you want to get more technical, I've got a pile of books. All right? So if you want that, let me know. We'll go there. The second thing we need to establish is that we don't have to definitively solve the problem of harmony. Sometimes we think that. We read the gospel records and we think, well, you know, that doesn't make sense with this. Mark said this and Luke said that. How does that go together? And we think we have to figure it out and solve it definitively and say, oh, that's it. No, actually, you don't have to do that. All you have to do is provide some plausible options. This could have happened, or this could have happened. It could have been either of those. We don't know for sure. And we don't know for sure because John doesn't tell us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us. But is there a plausible solution? So in many ways, the problem of 1828 is an unanswerable, definitively unanswerable problem. You can't answer it completely. But there's proposed plausible solutions. I'll give you two of them. The first one is not the one I favor, but it still is valid and plausible. So how how did Jesus and his apostles eat the Passover meal on Thursday, and now on Friday morning the Sanhedrin don't want to be defiled so they can eat the Passover? Remember, there's specific instructions in the Old Testament law about the Passover. So they had to sacrifice the lamb on Nisan 14 between the evenings, which is a technical term for between 3 and 5 p.m., And then they had to have the Passover meal and have it consumed before sunrise the next morning. That's the instructions in the law. You can read it for yourself. So there's very specific instructions in the law. So how did Jesus keep the law and the Sanhedrin keep the law? First option, that the word Passover identifies not just the Passover meal, but also the seven days of unleavened bread which followed on the heels of Passover. Now we're not just pulling that out of thin air. The gospel record itself says that. Luke 22 and verse 1, the word Passover is used to identify the whole feast, the whole eight days of the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Luke says this in 22.1, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So in Jewish colloquialism of the first century, when they said Passover, they could be talking about the Passover meal. They could be talking about Passover, the day of Passover. Or they could be talking about the whole eight-day feast in which Passover was observed and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the thought for our text is that the Sanhedrin had eaten the official Passover meal on Thursday night, just like Jesus had. 
But now here they are on Friday morning, and they simply want to stay ceremonially clean so that they can continue on in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because there's other sacrifices and rituals that they do according to the law throughout the feast. And if they are defiled now, they can't be part of that. Does that make sense? That's an option. It's a plausible one. Second option, which is where I would personally lean, is that there's a, a different reckoning of the days between the Galilean Jews and the Jews from Judea. So the Galilean Jews from the north, the, the region from which Jesus did most of his ministry. They, they figured days as starting at sunrise and finishing at the next sunrise. That's a really hard concept for us, right? We had this conversation in Sunday school. We were talking about the end of one day and the beginning of another. We're talking about the Sabbath. And the example is given, 11.59 and midnight. And, and we are so programmed to our watch, we think one day ends at 11.59 and 59 seconds and 59 one-hundredths of that second. And as soon as it becomes 12.00000 on the clock, it's the next day, right? That's how we think. Without your watch, you would have to rely on the sunrise and the sunset to think of when does a day begin and when does a day end. Well, the Galilean Jews did that basically because the Roman culture around them, which there was a lot of Gentiles and a lot of Romans around them in Galilee. They basically just adopted what they saw around them because they did so much business with the Gentiles. And so it just became easier to think of days just like the, the Gentiles did in the northern part of the country. But then you get to the southern part of the country and the Judean Jews, those based in Jerusalem and dominated by the religious life of the temple, thought of the day beginning at sunset and going till the next sunset. So the thought here is that the Galilean Jews coming to Passover would think of Nisan 14 as starting on Thursday morning at sunrise and finishing on Friday morning at sunrise. And so they had to offer their sacrifice their Passover sacrifice at the temple between 3 and 5 p.m. on Thursday, eat their meal Thursday night before Friday morning. The Judean Jews, those, those from Judah, the region of Jerusalem, thought it began Nisan 14 at sunset on Thursday. And at sunset on Thursday then, they had till sunset on Friday to sacrifice their lamb in that specific window on Friday afternoon and then prepare for the feast and eat it before sunrise on Saturday, all right? If, you've, if you're totally confused, I'm sorry, it's probably my fault. You can listen again later or go to some other source to figure it out. But the point is that that gives us a way to say, and it's a legit, plausible, historically accurate, there, there are uh, facts both biblically and historically in the records of Josephus to give us hints that that's how that was happening. It also helps solve some other tensions, like, uh, why does Mary say to Jesus, sure, you can use my main meeting room of my house on Christmas Day? Because that's what Passover was for the Jews. It was, it was Christmas Day. I, I, don't, I really don't have anything else going on. Go ahead. Did you, no, it, it's like, uh, well, I was planning to have Passover with my family, but I mean, you're Jesus, so go ahead. Well, this way, Mary's a Judean Jew, is planning to have Passover on Friday. Jesus is a Galilean Jew planning to have Passover on Thursday. Another thing this helps us solve is the reality of, of Jesus suffering and dying on a cross on Friday. As they begin the slaughter of the lambs in the temple complex, there is good evidence, and we'll get to it in John 19, that John presents Jesus as the true Passover lamb whose bones were not broken. And the idea here is that 
he was being sacrificed as other sacrificial lambs were being offered as well. And so with this explanation, that allows for that to be the reality on Friday afternoon. As Jesus cries, it is finished. The lamb's throats are being slit on the temple compound. He is the better sacrifice. So we have two plausible options. Both approaches help us solve the tension here of the harmony problem. But the harmony problem in verse 28 is not the greatest problem, is it? Hey, checked out, re-engage. The harmony problem is not the greatest problem. What's the greatest problem? It's the hypocrisy problem. These men are concerned about not being defiled by stepping into a Gentile house. They're working hard to put to death the only undefiled and pure man who has ever lived. These men were self-deceived and seeking to deceive others, which is the, the key and first mark of spiritual hypocrisy. They're seeking to keep up their outward image of cleanliness while they're harboring in their hearts the greatest hatred ever known, that of the very Son of God as they seek his death. They thought cleansing came through observing external regulations of religion. While they put to death the, the only one who could actually purify them through his own shed blood. They were deceived to think that they had attained spiritual purity and that they needed to keep it and guard it so they could do the next thing on their spiritual calendar to be approved by God. But internally in their heart and mind and soul, they loved the praise of men and the acclaim of others who saw their righteous deeds and esteemed them as righteous. Friend, they were play actors on the spiritual stage of life. They were deceived about their own righteousness and they were deceiving others. That's why they can act so pious in verse 30 when they bring Jesus to Pilate and he says, what's your accusation? And they retort to him, we are righteous and religious. So much so that if he had not been a wicked man, would we have brought him to you, Pilate? Are you kidding me? You're going to ask that question? We who are so holy and pure and clean, we wouldn't even step into your house so that we wouldn't be defiled. We're so clean, Pilate. And you're going to ask us if this guy is unclean and worthy of death? Are you kidding me? This is the seared and malformed conscience of the practiced hypocrite. It allows them to be scrupulous to keep some meticulous pattern of behavior like Bible reading, church attendance, and external appearance and behavior when others are watching while also practicing egregious sin, sin like hatred and lying and protecting power to achieve personal sinful desires through manipulative practices. This is why serial killers often go to church or attend mass. They can salve their conscience through meticulous religious practice as they play out in life, guarding themselves from being discovered. This is why, if I can say it, maybe some in this room can be respected by everyone else in this room. Whose true and actual life is a whole other story. Maybe you put on the nice religious mask of external spirituality when you come to be with God's people. But internally, none of it is real. Maybe you know how to look the part and 
act the part and speak the part. Maybe you know how to find the passages in your Bible in Sunday school, and you know how to give profound answers that make you look like you know Scripture. But you don't know the Lord. Friend, it's quite possible to be self-deceived and to be deceiving others. And if you are, your life will look much like the Sanhedrin who were scrupulous to keep the fine points of external religion while giving themselves a pass on greater issues of true religion like loving God and loving others. Listen, we all have to some degree or another hypocrisy, don't we? We, we all struggle to some degree or another with wanting others to think well of us. And this fear of man drives us to, to not always be genuous and in some way to be duplicitous. And we're all growing in Christ from error to truth. We're all being changed from being chained under the, the impediments of our own error and deceited, deceitful thinking to being set free by Christ and his truth and changed into his image. We're all in process. But there's more here than that. There's the reality with the Sanhedrin of a depth of heart that is like a whitewashed tomb. It looks nice and clean on the outside, but inside it holds dead men's bones. So I ask you from this text, are you nice and clean on the outside and full of a dead spiritual reality inside? Do you know Christ? Has he forgiven you and cleansed you by his shed blood? Have you been set free in Christ from your sin that has held you captive outside of him? Yeah, you're in process, but you know you're free from sin and seeking after him. Friend, if, if you're not, you're in a prison of hypocrisy. You're playing a game with yourself and everyone else, and you are miserable. You are absolutely miserable. You hate life, and you hate everyone in your life. But you keep playing this game to keep up the masquerade so that you don't get discovered. And can I just tell you, the greatest thing you can do today is to own it. To confess it before the Lord and before those in your life who know and love Jesus. And say, listen, I have been playing a game with God, with myself, and with you. It's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. But by the powerful grace of God, he can set you free from this game. And give you true and real life in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I say to you, don't delay, friend. May today be the day of your freedom, of your emancipation from your hypocrisy. Spiritual hypocrisy is also demanding. These men march into Pilate's colonnade and demand a hearing and a verdict. So it's deceitful. It's also demanding. They're not after a fair trial. They're after a verdict. They want a condemnation of Jesus. Spiritual hypocrisy always has an agenda. It always has a well-crafted plan of how things are going to go, how they need to be, who needs to play along? Who needs to be deceived in the process? There's always an agenda in hypocrisy. It's an essential part to maintaining the image which hypocrisy is protecting. 
These men presume that Pilate's going to play along. They've already tried to get him in their back pocket with their bribery. They've massaged the situation, and they suppose Pilate's going to play his part. And we'll see next week, Pilate amazingly changes course and refuses to play their little game. He wants an actual accusation, a real and true and verified and validated witness. And they have none, and he exposes their hypocrisy. And what's their response? They are irate. They are ticked off that someone would challenge their plan because they have a purpose here and no one's going to get in their way. See, that's what hypocrisy is. It's manipulative and demanding. And once someone gets in the way, then it gets angry. That's what anger always, almost always is, is evidence that you're not getting your way in something. And you're angry at someone else for standing in your way or not playing along. And so your anger is unleashed on them to bring them into line. That's why they shout down Pilate in verse 40. Get back in line, Pilate. You're out of your lane, buddy. This is not what we decided. He's going to die and you're going to be the tool. This is what hypocrisy does. It's demanding, manipulative especially relating to those areas which keep the narrative going of our spirituality. These men can't have Jesus put on an actual Roman trial because they know they have nothing against him which will get him executed. That should stop them. But they're so deep in the scum of the pond of their own hypocrisy, they can't help but keep going. And so they say to Pilate in a very dismissive and manipulative comment, listen, if he weren't guilty, he weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. You see the presumption and the haughtiness of their hypocrisy before Pilate. Spiritual hypocrisy is also determined. It's demanding and it's, it is determined. These men will not be derailed by Pilate. They're not going to say, oh, you know what, Pilate, that's a good thought. We'll be right back. No, they're determined to make this happen. They're going to have Jesus die. They want what they want, and they're going to get what they want, or they're going to die trying. It's really clear in verse 31, especially where Pilate kind of mockingly says to them, well, listen, if you're going to be so sure that he's guilty, why don't you just take him and try him yourselves? What he's saying to them is, I know you need me, so stop acting like you don't. Go try him yourselves then, if you're so sure of his guilt. And they retort back, and they say, listen, you know it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And that's absolutely right. They had lost the, the right, the, the authority for capital punishment and for good reason. To maintain political power in a country, take away their ability to kill their political enemies. And that's what Rome did. He said, no, only Rome's going to decide what political treasonous uprisers die. The Jews will not decide this. So it was not lawful for the Jews to put them to death. But this is evidence as they long for his death of their rabid determination to see Jesus die. They did not want him detained. They did not want him fined. They did not want him tarred and feathered. They did not want him put in the deepest, darkest cell, exiled to the farthest, uh, most desolate island in the Roman Empire. They did not want him in some dark and dangy dungeon in the depths of some hidden place in the Roman Empire. No, they wanted him dead. And they wanted him dead at the hands of Rome. 
And we know from John 11, verses 47 to, 50, to 48, that they wanted him dead because he was stealing their influence and overwhelming their power structures. In other words, they, they were able to rule over those people how they wanted, and Jesus came in and was upsetting their way of life. And he's about to topple over the idol of their reputation and their authority, and he's exposing their hypocrisy. Their game is almost over, and they hate him for it. And so they're determined for him to die. This is how spiritual hypocrisy always operates. It's nice to anyone who plays along. But as soon as you challenge them and get anywhere near grabbing the mask to pull it off, then the guns and the knives come out, so to speak. It's a declaration of war. They, they know it, and they'll fight tooth and nail to protect their self-made image, to keep themselves from being exposed. That's what's happening with the Sanhedrin in this text. So much so, ironically, that they're willing to call for the release of a known insurrectionist. How ironic is this? They're bringing Jesus to Pilate and say, kill him because he claimed to be a king coming against Caesar in Rome. To overthrow your power, Pilate, you need to put him to death. Oh, by the way, kill him and release to us Barabbas, who was part of a marauding band of robbers who operated in guerrilla warfare and has already killed some of your soldiers. Give us him, not this guy. Well, what proof do you have? No, 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 we don't have proof. Give us Barabbas. This is how determined they are in their hypocrisy to have their way. The last mark from this text of spiritual hypocrisy is that they're dead to the truth. They're dead to the truth. The truth is the first thing to go in hypocrisy. When you determine to play a spiritual game and present yourself as something you are not, you are no longer dealing in truth. You have sold your soul to a world of deception. And you've given yourself over to play in this house of cards constructed by your own lies. That's exactly what the Sanhedrin are doing here. And so they no longer speak of the truth or speak in the truth or pursue the truth. Now, you might present yourself as a warrior for the truth. In fact, the the Pharisees and the scribes in particular were persnickities about the truth. Down to the very letter of the law of Moses, making sure that they knew what was true and that Jesus and his disciples were keeping it. But in their hearts of hearts, they had abandoned truth long ago. They were dead to the truth. Isn't that a fair description, I think, of these men in John 18? They in verse 30, bald-facedly called Jesus an evil man. Beloved, you've read that so many times, you just, you just run over that. They called Jesus of Nazareth an evil man. A wicked man deserving execution. What a charge against the only truly good man to ever live. I mean, how, how horribly blind are you to take the only human example of goodness, pure in every way, sinless in every word, thought, deed, motive, action, relationship, everything. Not a charge can be found against this man. And to be so blind as to say, he is wicked and he must die. 
You also see this in verses 38 to 40 where Pilate pronounces his verdict. I find no guilt in this man. Rather than that, giving the Sanhedrin pause, causing them to reevaluate their judgment, step back, take a breath, you know, maybe we're wrong here. Maybe this isn't the time or the way to get rid of Jesus. Rather, they press forward, screaming for Jesus to be executed. Beloved, there's nothing false about Jesus. He's the very embodiment of truth. Barabbas, there's nothing true about him. He's as wicked as the day is long, deserving of his execution that is impending. Everyone knows he's guilty. Everyone knows he peddles in deception and lies. And here are the the chieftains of truth in Jerusalem saying, we want the liar, kill the truth teller. We want the robber and the insurrectionist and the murderer. Kill the guy who's only healed people and given them their sight back and raised them from the dead and fed 6,000 with five loaves and two fish. Kill him. You see, hypocrisy makes you dead to the truth. As we close, I want to draw your attention to verse 32. An editorial comment by John as he writes his gospel, and in it we find the hope that we can have in the face of spiritual hypocrisy. The text we've talked about paints a bleak picture of the Sanhedrin's spiritual standing, doesn't it? They are as hypocritical as the day is long. They demand the death of Jesus, and as they do, they are actually keeping their word. They committed back in chapter 11 that this was how this was going to go. Their own leader, Caiaphas, has said this is the best plan. It's politically expedient. We need to make it happen. And so ever since then, they had been seeking for a way to kill Jesus. But notice what John says in verse 32 about whose word is being kept by these events. John says this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. As John puts his cap on the narrative of the Sanhedrin's hypocrisy, who does he point you to? He points you to the word of Jesus. Everyone around him is scheming and conniving and dealing in deceit and deception. But whose plan prevails here? Whose word does not fall to the ground? Whose purposes are accomplished in John 18 and 19? It is the word of our Lord. Well, what word? Well, remember back in chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus? He said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. He said it again in John 8 and again in John 12, that I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John says there in John 12, he was speaking of the death by which he was going to die. And so what's happening here in John 18 is that Jesus is making sure that the will of his Father is accomplished, not just that he dies, but how he dies. And as truth incarnate, he stands the test of every deceiver ever known in authority in this realm, and he stands the test as the truth of God who gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. And so I say to you, if you're a hypocrite today, the answer is not to 
find truth in yourself. Throw off all your inhibitions and, man, just own it. Just own it that you're a sinner and let everybody know it and just live that way. That's what the world would tell you. Be authentic to the true you. That will lead you down a path of intense spiritual imprisonment like you have never known before. Don't do that. If you're living the life of the hypocrite, your only hope is found in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Only he can set you free. Brother or sister, maybe you're living in life with the reality of someone who is hypocritical. And you're having to deal with the consequences of, of of their deception of everyone else. But you see it and you're hurting. What's the answer here? Well, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is accomplishing his will and his way even through their hypocrisy, just like in John 18. So he does in your life and in mine to accomplish his great and better purposes. And so with fresh faith, trust him. Depend on him. He is your only hope, and it will all be to his glory. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, thank you for the power of your word to teach us, to instruct our hearts, and to encourage us in the truth. Would you continue that in all of us today? I pray especially for those among us who may have thought they're in Christ, but aren't yet in him by faith. Lord, I plead with you that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would be freed by the blood of the Lamb, and know the security of of truth and life and joy in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.